Hello, my name is Steve D'Agostino, and my co-host Anne Fernald and I welcome you to the Twice Over podcast, because to teach is to learn twice over. In this episode, Burying the Book, we are joined by Melkana Brakalova Trevithik, professor of mathematics at Fordham University, who shares her thoughts about the language of math and how to address the challenges of math instruction. Welcome to this episode of the Twice Over podcast. We're really, really delighted to be joined by our colleague, Professor of Mathematics, Melkana Brakalova Trevithik. She is a wonderful, wonderful mathematics instructor. And we've been talking a lot this season about teaching STEM, challenges to teaching STEM during the pandemic, and ways we think about teaching different disciplines. We've been really focusing on thinking about math, especially. And so we're really, really happy to have you here with us, Malkana. So welcome to the podcast. So Malkana, can you talk to us a little bit about, let's start back before you even came to Fordham. And how did you decide to become a professor of mathematics? What made you become a mathematician? I fall into a certain category among mathematicians. Some of us have decided to become mathematicians when we were children. So it was maybe around fifth grade that made me aware that I really love math. And it was done by a challenge. My math teacher said that I'm a mediocre student. Ooh. And somehow this, this just sparkled a great ambition <laughs> on my behalf. I, I did not rely on any parental or grandparental in my case, because I was living at that time with my grandparents' advice. I sat down and solved 2,000 questions. I solved what? anything under the sun I could put my hands on. And, <laughs> and lo and behold, um, I suddenly became very confident and very good at math. <laughs> So is that a technique you use with your students now? You take them aside and say, I think you're mediocre. (laughs) Okay. Well, maybe with some of of them, it might work very well. Uh, Like if they're not doing well and you tell them that and they say, well, no, I am not. And that would be fine. Um, But I don't think so. I think I try to encourage everybody to do the best they can and enjoy it. You're a little girl, someone lights a fire under you because they kind of tell you you can't, you're not very good at it, and you dive in just feet first. What head first? I don't know which way, but you dive in, <laughs> right? When did you know that you also wanted to teach math? When I decided that I need to make money, the first thing that <laughs> came to mind was I can tutor. And that was like a magic for me. Like, wow, you can actually sit down with somebody and teach them. You know, I was 17 year old and how would you, I mean, this is like a big responsibility. So um, I, I did enjoy very much working with uh, children that were almost my age. I always loved explaining to some of my friends if they had questions in math, how I would do it. Let me tell you. So I, I, I really enjoyed that. So maybe I wasn't aware of teaching as a profession because that is a profession and it requires its own uh, practice and skills and thinking. But I was thinking of this as a experience. 
give so, what I have to somebody else. A lot of times people who have your journey to becoming a teacher where you see a challenge and then you meet it and then you make the decision to keep pursuing it, don't end up being very patient with people who aren't getting it, right? And so can you talk a little bit about what it's like to move from being someone who taught yourself how to do it to someone who's patient with people who need a tutor? I think it's a process and it takes um, many, many turns. And sometimes I believe I have not been patient. And sometimes I have been very patient. So as a profession becomes way more sophisticated because a teacher has a lot of tools um, to bring knowledge to their students. And sometimes those tools are not used well, and sometimes they are. I, I feel it's, it's a evolving process. And somewhere in my career, I figured out that it's not me, it's the student who actually is most important. So patience is out of question. I mean, um, it's supposed to be there. What's important is that you really, really understand the settings, the context within which a person is thinking. And everybody is unique. So you, you cannot apply the same approach to other people. You have to figure out how to how to really get to a person who is trying to understand something that's hard. You asked me the question about patience. I think it's more than that. Okay. <laughs> it's more than patience. It's more like willingness to communicate with the brain and the psychology of a human being. And that is not about you know, patience is maybe a part of the process, but a bigger part of the process is, is getting to know the person you're trying to teach, you're trying to help out and to engage them. So maybe, maybe they don't think like you. Maybe they took, think in a completely different way. Uh, maybe the model of their thinking is something you can learn from. So I find through these interactions, it's, it's like you're getting a lot out of, of, of a universe of thoughts. And it's like we are living in this huge world of, of approaching whatever we're trying to approach, mathematics or humanities or science, through various lenses. So patience was like at the beginning of my career, something that I may have thought about, but it evolved into something more complicated about uh, being part of a one unity and communicating in the ways that we best can. What is it like to confront people who are not fond of the subject, perhaps actively resistant to it or upset about it or afraid of it or bitter that they have to take it? How, I, because I don't know if other subjects spark the same kind of emotional responses that mathematics can in 
not just in learners, but even teachers in, in elementary school, say, who are required to teach mathematics, but don't have the numeracy that they might, they need to develop those skills. So how, what is, what is that the experience as a math educator, a person who loves math, interacting with people who perhaps don't feel the same way? I want to pull on the word patience from Anne's, uh, Anne's uh, question and bring it to the level of, of the student who is teaching uh, studying math. I think that sometimes presence of patience on behalf of the student is what's necessary to be successful and giving the student opportunity to employ some patience in figuring out hard things. Let me, let me tell you a story about a mathematician whose name is Yuri Manin. He was uh, in his early teens and he found a math text, uh, a calculus text in the attic of one of his friends. And he started reading it and went into the epsilon delta definition, which is notoriously difficult. He got so frustrated, he went ahead and buried the book and, and he has said, the hell with it. I don't want to know about math now. This guy is a famous mathematician, so what happened? He literally buried the book. Buried the book, he was so frustrated with it. Yes. It's a story I read in a, book I just discovered. And in an hour, a rain started. And he said, mm, that book, I have to go get it. And he got the book and he understood that he loved it no matter what. So to start with patience, you know, he didn't have the patience and he was a young person. So in some way, I feel that we all go through that frustration and hate. It's not only love for the subject. And only gradually we learn how to deal with uh, the difficulties. And the reason mathematics is probably so difficult is because it's a language by itself and it's hard to communicate and to inspire students to learn it. So we are talking about very condensed language developed over centuries, millennia to say, and it is really difficult to find a way to produce some sort of a level of knowledge that, that everybody has to have when it took 2000 years to develop it. And lo and behold, in, in Greece, uh, 300 years before BC, um, Euclid wrote his elements and wrote about the Pythagorean theorem without knowing anything about numbers. Numbers were discovered much later. So these are like well-accepted concepts that we should know about, but mathematics is way more beyond numbers. And so even numbers took a while to develop. So like approach, uh, the approach to this kind of difficulties of understanding concept, concepts and abstract ideas is very important. So there are many approaches to, to bringing people to enjoy them rather than hate them. But I'm telling you, a real mathematician buried the book. He didn't want to know anything about calculus. <laughs> so but I love that story. I love that story. And one of the things that we've been hearing a lot since the pandemic, right, is that people's tolerance 
I mean, we've been living in a difficult moment, a difficult historical moment, a difficult time. People are stressed out, they're tired. And so how has your approach to encouraging students to stay in difficulty, keep trying to answer the problem, don't Google the answer, don't give up, don't bury the book. If you bury the book, go get it. When yeah. we know that our students are operating without the reserves that they might have in a more plush, non-pandemic time. I think I've always tried to be friendly and, and kind of encouraging present and being there and uh, holding my hand out and saying, please come and talk to me. I, I would like to help you. Compassionate in understanding I even understand people who slip through my class sometimes, you know, I understand they have something that causes that. Relating to the student in non-confrontational way, uh, relating to the student and understanding them as human beings. I feel that, and that was discussed in a recent workshop that I attended by the Mathematical Association of America, Mathematics is a social subject and, and that has been denied somehow to it. We are indeed part of a social structure. We think mathematically, even if we don't want to admit it. So incorporating the social part of mathematics, the aspect of it that has psychology and, and reasoning and meaning relating all those important for real life things while I'm teaching mathematics is important. So I hope I can help students deal with their own questions and their own in some indirect way and their own difficulties in, in, in some indirect way because I feel we are all connected in what we do through mathematics, through English, through languages, through science, through all the subjects we are working with. There is, there is a connection with, between everything. Thinking about math as part of a social system, what are your thoughts about the reconceptualization of math or relocation of math as part of something now called STEM? not deeply integrated as perhaps it may have been within the humanities, but really put with other kinds of, I guess, technical subjects. Have you thought about this at all? It's an important question. Why mathematics is actually not say science, but it's in STEM, we have science, technology, uh, engineering and math. Why is math you're asking separate and not integrated in any of the other categories? I've never heard the idea before that math, there, there's a social system aspect of mathematics, right? Yeah. People who, you know, thinking about, okay, what does it mean to think mathematically? We are perhaps by nature mathematical. Yes. You know, we count, we measure. So I'm wondering about the implications for teaching and learning when math is removed from, say, philosophy or literature and placed among technical fields, are there implications there as a teacher and a teacher of teachers? Let's focus on deductive reasoning. 
this is developed by, I hope I know that maybe I don't, maybe a philosophy professor will uh, argue otherwise by the Greek philosophy school of people who are mathematicians. So uh, what we do is we take our um, inquisitive nature and we discover things that might be in the social aspect of life, that might be in the scientific aspect of life. And then we try to find a language that describes them. So that's how, to me, mathematics developed. It is uh, combining the fantastic deductive reasoning, which is all we have to conclude anything about the future and the scientific observations. So it is part of STEM in the sense that it grew out of, social, of um, the sciences and it is part of our everyday life as it teaches deductive reasoning to the superb, to the perfection. Now, if we want to really have great curriculum, we should be able to integrate the common parts in this Venn diagram between math and the sciences, but also between math and the humanities. Because what, who is that professor in, in say anthropology or English who does like a paper written without any logic in it? Logic is what makes mathematics great. What makes mathematics also great is the language, but not the natural language that we use. It's the language that was developed to condense the laws of nature. And so we kind of struggle with that language, but I feel that your question of math together with the sciences outside of the other disciplines is that you're just asking my thoughts about it. And I'm, I'm feeling like, yeah, Math really relates to the sciences because it grows out of them and engineering and technology, but it also is part, in my opinion, it's not, it's not about adding and subtracting mindlessly algorithmically. That is, leave this to the computers. Math is about discovering, creating, and moving between different disciplines like you open an economics text uh, textbook you understand it because you know a little bit about math you open sophisticated philosophical treaties and you understand something about it because you know about math you open some uh, heavy document describing policy issues and you understand something about it because you know about math because you know something about thinking rigorously and deductively and inductively and so on and so on. I haven't taken math in a long time. I never took calculus. I loved some aspects of math a ton. And I loved symbolic logic, which is like the combination of philosophy and mathematics. Sometimes when I'm trying to explain something really complex in a narrative, I'll go back to symbolic logic because I can just represent it quickly and people can see the structure of what I'm saying. And one of the experiences I have is my students look at that if P then Q and Q, you know, and they get so mad at me because they want my English class to be separate from what they've done in their philosophy or their math class. And I'm like, no, these are tools. Like I'm using a very, very elementary version of a tool to help make an explanation across a disciplinary boundary that's totally artificial. Like it might help your brain comprehend something in this 
novel that has a really complicated plot if we simplify it into this logical progression. But I get there, there'll always be a certain swath of the class who are like betrayed that I have introduced something that looks like an algebra algebraic equation onto the blackboard. Right. And that is speaking a lot to the psychology of our approach to study. It's mostly negative feelings that fuel that response to your actual providing of means to understand something deep. And rejecting those means is like rejecting oneself the opportunity to understand. So there is something about losing curiosity and losing faith and feeling betrayed by the way we teach math. It is a skill and it is a skill that is not necessarily God-given, but can be acquired. <laughs> but maybe to, for some, it's kind of God-given. Uh, a skill that allows for the initiative of the individual to flourish and to justify, to justify that I need that knowledge. I need to understand. I, I want to understand. If you press somebody to do something, they don't want to do it. I think that's how math has developed, the, the hate about math. You know, you kind of force people to follow some algorithms they don't care about. Maybe the students would have appreciated your bringing this magic deductive rules, you know, inference rules to them if they were not already in the other camp. Oh, I don't want to know it. <laughs> that to me is always a puzzle, right? When, when someone is sitting in a classroom, with a faculty member and their visceral reaction is, I don't want to know it. I'm like, well, but you came into this space. Like you matriculated at an institution of higher education. So- um, But a literature, a literature class should be a safe space. <laughs> don't you think? That's I mean, what, they, uh, what does that you know, mean? <laughs> I, I never even learned, I refuse to learn rhyme and meter because I'm not counting. I refuse to count. <laughs> I remember when I was an art major, when we were learning about perspective, it was a lot of, oh. it, it was, I don't want to say geometry, but yeah. there were, there were certain, you needed knowledge of certain geometric ratios yeah. to draw figures and to draw perspective. And there are a lot of my classmates in the art program who just were not happy about this. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Right? Right. Yeah. Right. Um, I think there's something like a, a kind of, I don't want to coin a phrase, but, but some kind of like math trauma in a way where people don't have, and it could be generational, you know, I'm in my late fifties. So I experienced math instruction, math class as like math club, right. That the teacher was talking to just a very small subset of the entire class. Yeah. yeah. And it was communicated, you know, around 13, 14 years old that, if you're not good in math, it's going to have real implications for your future prospects. Yeah, yeah, I see. Um, I, I think of, of, of us like occupying a certain mathematical knowledge. So we start like, I imagine this funnel, you know, like, you know, you start from the bottom and your knowledge grows as you move for upward. And, and everybody starts from nothing, including Yuri Manin, who is... Uh, very 
well-established established mathematician, you want to bury a book, you know, frustration is there. How do you deal with it is a different topic. And I, I wish math was not viewed in this way um, because it, it's just uh, one of the great tools we developed in as, as humans. It was a way of seeing nature, society, visualizing things. Uh, to me, visualization is essential in understanding mathematical concepts I work with. So I feel what you're saying, proportions is just an aspect of visualizing things. And so you need them. In fact, the proportions were the only reason the Greeks could develop number theory without numbers. And they proved things by visualizing them. They, they transformed things, objects around. Like, how do you prove the Pythagorean theorem if you don't have A squared plus B squared equals C squared? There is no A, B, and C in Greek mathematics. So what do you do? You talk about squares, actual squares. And you start moving them around, sharing the area and, and showing through transformations that things fit together nicely. So, so it's all proportion. It's okay. not numbers. No, no numbers. And they were convinced that everything can be written as a ratio of two. I was thinking of talking about Da Vinci is a mathematician, first and foremost, a geometer. And that's why Da Vinci is a scientist. Da Vinci, there was an exhibition when I was a younger person in Bulgaria about Da Vinci. So I, I went there and I was shocked by his scientific accomplishments because they were in front of us. He thought about aerodynamics and he thought about art and he thought about mathematics. And behind all of his great, so well-known paintings behind the the paint you can discern the geometry of the painting and the geometry involves the so-called golden ratio so a lot of circles crossing where this hand will come in where uh, this head will be posed and so this kind of geometry connects to for example my calculus class so i told my students Da Vinci was a mathematician who was applying his knowledge to math, to medicine, to uh, science, and he was a great artist uh, at the same time. And so the golden, uh, golden ratio comes in and I, I explain how the Fibonacci sequence plays a role in the golden ratio. And it was amazing in one of my classes, calculus classes, one of my students, who may recognize if she ever listens to this podcast herself in here, we were studying like, what is the golden ratio? And it's easy to explain. You have a, a rectangle and you look at the ratio of the larger side over the shorter side. And that's in the golden proportion. If the sum of the two larger and shorter side relate in the same proportion to the larger side. So this kind of expression already is asking for some sort of symbolism to explain it. And symbolically, that means that a number is equal to one plus its proportion, uh, its uh, reciprocal. 
so I explained that in terms of symbols. My students, obviously, this person listened to it. And then we went into the Fibonacci sequence. And so this is a sequence that starts with two numbers and then creates the next one as a sum of the previous two. That's it. So you can take a first grader, give them the number one and one, and tell them what's the sum. And they say two. And then say, what is one plus two? And they can say three, right? Three plus two is five. Five plus three is eight. So it's a very nice sequence. You can teach a little child to create. And so where is the golden ratio, which is a number relating sides of a rectangle to that sequence? And that was my story in teaching my calculus students uh, about the golden ratio. And lo and behold, uh, there is a connection. So anyway, I don't want to get into too much math, but she figured out the relation in a way that I have never looked at. So the challenge in my life has been to bring the excitement to, to learning in this particular aspect of, of learning uh, to my students. So you talk, you know, in general terms about I want everyone to feel enthusiastic and excited about it. But what about when you face a student who might feel like, oh, I'm not going to be good at this. People who look like me, people who are my race or my gender or from my country don't do well in this classroom. How are you thinking about um, interrupting that narrative, which can be really harmful to people's performance? I don't think uh, math should be considered different from other subjects in terms of treating those issues. You might be right that it is harder to address them in a way that breaks those boundaries and provides opportunities uh, in terms of if, in terms of teaching. But I, I feel like if we treat everybody equally and and they feel comfortable and they feel like this is safe for me and it's a math class and I'm safe here. It's kind of teaching indirectly exactly what you're talking about. We, we are not different. We're the same. We have the same opportunities. To me, that wasn't a problem until I started realizing it is a problem of a society I became a member of. I am learning about it and I am trying to work on it. And I always understand better what the situation is. And, and it's not pretty. Providing a safe, safe environment where everybody can thrive is one way to address it. This has to be genuine. If you're genuinely interested in your students and, and their success and their comfort, I think that might address some of what you're talking about including the fact that you're teaching them how to be more powerful because empowering them is also a part of it. And empowering them with uh, the tools that mathematics provide in the right way is also giving them opportunities to fight that inequality and uh, injustice. A lot during the most acute phase of the pandemic yes. about yes. how to teach calculus online. Now that we're in this more endemic or chronic moment, are there tools, methods, 
strategies, approaches to teaching mathematics that you adopted during the most acute phase that you've carried forward now? And can you describe what they are and why they, why they still are working for you? I learned a lot through the pandemic. I think our opportunity to actually comfortably teach uh, in front of, of a screen and develop our lesson comfortably and record it is a great, a great development, especially for me. I had no idea I can sit in front of a screen where there is nobody and and develop my lesson and flip the classroom in a way. So flipped classrooms became like natural extension of the pandemic. I was totally floored by the opportunities the iPad provides for us to teach. I can sit in my class, write on the iPad, watch my students, and they're seeing all I write behind me. So what happens? is that I'm not moving with my back toward them. I am communicating with them something that is being actually projected. So it's a kind of writing on the blackboard without writing on the blackboard. It's a magic to me. It's not only providing an opportunity to communicate in a very beautiful way where you're not wasting your time to look for the eraser, to look for the marker to walk across the classroom to drop something on the floor to trip over i mean you can imagine all kinds of circumstances that slow down the communication the process but uh, the ipad provided the opportunity to combine uh, communication in a at a higher level in some way um communicating ideas communicating mathematics communicating skills uh providing way of thinking. So I know my students because I am not constantly writing with my back toward them. So what happened is we became, I think, better teachers because became, we became more self-aware who we are, what do we do? Are we um, actually communicating by looking at our students well? Uh, are we talking to ourselves? I mean, this is like a tool to improve anyone the last question we always like to ask the teachers whom we interview is um, to just give you a chance to tell us about a teacher who's been important in your life probably it will be a non-standard answer but i learned from my colleagues i have great great admiration for those i work with I think they have been probably most influential in my life. I've been inspired by them. So I wouldn't say a teacher didn't have a role. I mean, maybe the teacher who told me I can't do math was very important too, because negative feedback is very positive sometimes. But I, I would like to say I always learn from my colleagues and I am continuing to. What a treat to talk to you. It's just super inspiring and really exciting. And I can't wait for people to be able to listen to this conversation. So thanks for your time. Twice Over Podcast is available on SoundCloud, Stitcher, and Spotify. For host and guest bios and show notes, please visit our website, twiceoverpodcast.com. You can follow us on Twitter at twiceover1 or 
email us at twiceoverpodcast at gmail.com. On behalf of Anne and myself, thanks so much for listening.